The Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us pray together. Father, we have partaken in this, uh, the Lord's Supper, Father, to show that uh, we are one with one another and especially one with you. And Father, I pray that we'll never forget the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross and that he poured out his blood and, his, and he allowed his body to be broken on our behalf. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the gift of eternal life. And we pray, Lord, that you would especially be with those today that need an extra measure of your grace and your comfort and your strength. Uh, Father, we're, we're grateful uh, for all that you've done uh, with our physical health as a, as a body and as individuals. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would bless those who may be weak this day. And so, Father, we also pray for Vacation Bible School. We pray that your hand would be upon us as we seek to reach out to uh, a portion of our community. And, Lord, we pray that the uh, kids that uh, show up will be families that need to know Christ or families that need a church home, families that simply need to know that they're loved. And I pray that we'll do that. We'll love them and uh, that we'll minister to them and get to know them and befriend them. And, Father, let them not feel lonely or let them not feel separated from you. But, Lord, we pray that if indeed there are some who might come tonight or throughout this next number of days of Vacation Bible School who uh, are without Christ, we pray for their salvation. We pray for their parents' salvation. And we pray this, Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. At this time, I'm going to invite our, our kids. If you haven't already gone upstairs, you are invited to join Miss Amy. And head on upstairs for our kids' time. One of my favorite kinds of movies to watch are, are westerns. I love the, a lot of the old westerns. And there's, of course, a lot of fiction, uh, probably a lot more violence than there, than there really was in the real old west, you know, but... Um, one of my very favorite movies of all time is The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And uh, I can't actually recommend that you go watch it necessarily. It's not a Christian film in any sense of the word. Uh, but uh, for me, loving westerns, it's sort of fun. And there's a scene at the very end where uh, after, the, after the big shootout, there's supposed to be some gold hidden in, in, hidden in a gravesite. 
And, um, and so one of them, uh, one of the characters uh, is trying to dig and he needs a shovel and the other character comes up, Clint Eastwood's character, and throws a shovel at him and tells him to dig. And Clint Eastwood said, there are two types of people in the world, those with guns and those who dig. You dig. And he makes the guy dig. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about that this week uh, for no other reason than Jesus runs into, in Mark chapter 8, three different kinds of people. There are three, I really believe that there are three different kinds of people in this world. And Jesus deals with all three in one scene. Really, it's a couple of different scenes, but it's all tied together. And the, the three kinds of people that Jesus runs into, number one, there are those who know they have a need. Secondly, there are those who have no faith whatsoever. And third, there's those people in the middle that are spiritually dull. And Jesus runs into three kinds of people in Mark chapter 8. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Mark 8. And I want you to know that you're going to fit one of these three categories. You're, you're either going to be someone who has no faith whatsoever... And that might, might sound ridiculous that we're in church and I might be talking to someone who would have no faith. I mean, what would someone with no faith be doing in church? Well, the people that Jesus dealt with in Mark 8 who had no faith, they were the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders. Being religious and being someone who has faith, two different things. And so the Pharisees were very, very religious, but they had no faith. And Jesus dealt with them in this passage. Then Jesus, at the end, he dealt with his own disciples. They were very spiritually dull at this point. I'll give it to them that they were following Jesus. But Mark makes it clear earlier in Mark chapter 6 that their hearts were hardened. And that's, that's a dangerous term to use, that their hearts were hardened. Here's followers of Jesus who didn't get it, who had hard hearts. And they were the disciples. But the first group that Jesus ministers to are people who aren't even God's people. They're Gentiles. They're non-Jews. They're, they're just regular old people, yet they are the ones who perceive themselves as having a need. And here's the point that I would make to you today. That people with no faith and spiritually dull people are blind to their own needs. They're blind to their own needs. In other words, it is only someone who has faith who's able to say to Jesus, I need help. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need something. I need help, Jesus. Someone who doesn't have faith won't say those words, won't think those thoughts. Someone who's spiritually dull won't get it. They won't understand the basic concept that they need help. Well, Jesus encounters all three types of people. And the first people that Jesus encounters are those who have a need. And what does Jesus do for people who understand that they have a need and they come to him for help? It's simple. He meets their needs. He cares. He, Jesus cares for people in need. Mark chapter 8. Let's begin reading in verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered... And they had nothing to eat. 
Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. This sounds like another story that we ran into in Mark chapter 6. Mark 6, you have the feeding of the 5,000. This, as we'll discover, is the feeding of the 4,000. Some scholars say it's the same story told twice. It's not. It's very different. And we'll get to some of the differences in just a minute. But the question is this. How could the disciples forget about what happened in Mark chapter 6 not too long ago? And that's what they did. Look at verse 4. His disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? These are the same guys that saw Jesus feed the 5,000. And now they've got another hungry crowd, and they say, this is impossible. How can we do this? How can anyone feed all these people? And we might ask that question. You know, how dull, how dumb were these disciples, really? How dense were they? I would say that they're about as dense as you and me. How often do we forget what God has done for us? How quickly has God blessed us in the past, and yet now we forget His promises. We forget that He promises to take care of us, that He promises to clothe us, to feed us. To, he promises to provide for all of our needs. God has made so many promises for us, and yet every time we worry and we fret and we are concerned and we despair, what does that say about us? We've forgotten who God really is and how much He loves us. And so before we get too, uh, too angry at the disciples for being a little bit dense, I'd say that we pretty much fall in the same category from time to time. But they forgot. They forgot what Jesus did with the 5,000. And here Jesus is about to feed 4,000 people. So in verse 5, He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanathua. Now, here you have, in one instance in Mark 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Now we've got the feeding of the 4,000. Which one was greater? Which was a greater ministry? Well, a, a greater miracle, really. You might say, well, the feeding of the 5,000. There were more people. And not only that... The feeding of the 5,000 started with five loaves. And it ended with 12 baskets of bread. Okay, so you start with five loaves, feed 5,000 men, not including the women and children, and you end up with 12 baskets full of bread. The feeding of the 4,000 starts with seven loaves. Not quite as hard, right? It starts with seven loaves, feeds 4,000 people, and ends with seven baskets of bread. Ends up with fewer baskets. 
on the surface, it looks like the feeding of the 5,000 is a greater miracle. But I'd say the feeding of the 4,000 is greater, at least in one respect, maybe a couple. And I say that because the baskets that were used in the feeding of the 5,000, it's a Greek word, kofinos. It's a basket like that basket sitting on the back table that can maybe carry someone's lunch. That's the size basket. It's literally called a hand basket. In the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 hand baskets left over. In the feeding of the 4,000, the Greek word there is spuris. Totally different kind of basket. This is the kind of basket in Acts chapter 9 when Paul was in Damascus and they, they were after him and he had to escape out of Damascus and they put Paul in a basket. And if you've ever had this mental picture that this grown man was in a basket this big, you're wrong. Okay? They put him in a basket the size of a casket. They put him in a huge basket that could carry a grown man. And they lowered him down, out of, down from the wall. That's the kind of basket that's used here in the feeding of the 4,000. And there were seven loaves, or seven baskets, I should say, Huge baskets full of bread left. At least in that respect, the feeding of the 4,000 was a greater miracle. But the real difference between the two feedings is this. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus fed Jewish people. In Mark chapter 8, here, he feeds Gentiles. Earlier, the Jewish people should have seen that he is like Moses. He had them out in a desolate place. He fed them bread from heaven, if you will. It was like manna with Moses feeding the children of Israel in the desert. They should have seen that. They should have recognized, at least the disciples should have, that this guy is a second Moses and maybe even more. And the disciples failed to realize it, actually. Well, now Jesus is with Gentiles. He's with people who don't understand Moses, who don't understand all of that kind of a typology, all of the symbols there. And so here Jesus doesn't emphasize teaching, because back in Mark 6 he taught a lot, but in Mark chapter 8 he doesn't teach whatsoever, according to what we hear. But yet he shows great compassion for the crowd. He, he expresses his compassion. These people who are not God's people are hungry. And they may faint and they may die. And I care about them. And so I'm going to meet their needs. That's the point here. And when Jesus meets their needs, when he takes the bread, he does something different than he did in Mark chapter 6. In Mark 6, it says that he took the bread and he said a blessing. In other words, he said a good Jewish blessing. He blessed, you know, when we talk about blessing the food, you know, before we eat, let's bless the food. Really, the proper term is we bless God. That's what Jesus did. He blessed God. He gave glory to God. He pointed people to the Father. And so in Mark chapter 6, Jesus blessed God with the proper Jewish blessing, appreciating and thanking God for the food because it all came from the Father. In Mark chapter 8, he doesn't bless the bread, but he gives thanks for it. What's the difference? It's a different word. 
The word give thanks that Mark uses is the word Eucharist. We get the word Eucharist from it. Now, if you have any Lutheran friends, they may talk about the Lord's Supper, like the, what we partook in, being the Eucharist. We don't use that term an awful lot, but it's a biblical term. The word Eucharist is, comes from two Greek words, E-U, meaning good, charis, charismatic, you know that. Charis means grace. The word Eucharist means good grace. And it's the term that is used elsewhere in the New Testament for when we partake in the Lord's Supper. We are remembering the good grace of God when Jesus died on the cross for us. And so when we partake in the Lord's Supper, we always say, thank you. Thank you. Because we don't deserve God's forgiveness. We don't deserve His eternal life. We don't deserve His fellowship and unity that we have in Christ. But God gives us all of this, and we need to never diminish it. We need to never take advantage of it or forget it. It is the good grace of God. Now, here's what Jesus is doing. He's taking a symbol of the supper of God's people, a common theme in both the Old and the New Testament, that there's coming a day when God the Father will sit down with his people, and they will sup together as King James says they will eat together they will have a great banquet together what an what an incredible day that will be and the Lord's Supper the Eucharist not only points back to the cross but it also points forward to the time when we sit down with our Heavenly Father and all of our loss all of our loved ones who have gone on before us and we participate and a great feast that only God's people get to participate in. So what's Jesus doing? He's taking that incredible Jewish promise of a great feast for God's people, and he's saying, you Gentiles, you non-Jews, you Palestinians, you Egyptians, you Texans, You're a part of God's people too. You're not excluded either. I love you just as much. And what I did for my people, the Jewish people, you get all those same promises because you are spiritual Israel. I love you just the same. This is good news for us that Jesus took the time. When I was a kid, I read about the feeding of the 4,000. I thought, Jesus is repeating himself, you know, what's the deal here? What's going on? I don't get it. I think I have a little bit better understanding now. Jesus is making a point. In showing compassion to them, he shows compassion to me. He shows compassion to the people that I love. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus died for his brothers, Israel, but he also died for us. And it's a foreshadowing of the church's mission to the Gentiles. What does Jesus do for people in need? He cares for them. He cares for you. He cares for me. Well, then Jesus had to deal with people without faith. And what does Jesus do with, for people without faith? Well, the first thing he does, he grieves. Look at verses 11 through 13. We read, the Pharisees came. And by the way, they were still mad at him. 
because he confronted them earlier. And they were now going to pick a fight. And they're probably picking a fight with the wrong person. The Pharisees came. They began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Jesus just fed 4,000 people with hardly anything. And they say, show us a sign. What kind of sign did they want? Well, they wanted thunder and lightning. That's what they wanted. They wanted fire from heaven. They wanted something spectacular, something showy. But the very fact that Jesus just did this miracle and they dismiss it shows their hearts that they have no faith. They sought a sign from heaven to test him, to test Jesus, to test God. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. That word sighed means that he was emotionally moved, deeply agitated, irritated. You know how some things sort of get under your skin? Some things sort of irritate you, aggravate you, you know? Maybe it's your sister or your brother, you know, poking at you, making, trying to irritate you. I'll tell you what makes Jesus emotional throughout the Gospels. Religious people who have no faith, that disturbs him deeply. People who know the Scriptures, whose hearts are far from God, that disturbs Jesus. And he sighed deeply. And he said to them, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Twice Jesus calls the Pharisees part of this generation. What does that mean? That, that idea of this generation? Wickedness, perversity, spiritually blind. That's what this generation means. And Jesus makes it very clear. You guys fit that. You call yourself religious, you look religious, but you have no faith. You are perverse, you're wicked, you're far from God, you're in danger of being cut off completely. And then what does he do? Verse 13. He left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Here's the scary thing. You have very religious people. And what does Jesus do with people who have no faith, whether they're religious or not? First, it grieves him. And eventually he leaves. He's done. He goes somewhere else. That's what Jesus does. And I think it's a warning. There's a warning to each one of us who obviously by being here in this church are religious. It's a warning for us to guard our hearts. But I think even a more pertinent warning comes in this last category of people who are actually followers of Christ and yet they're spiritually dull. And what does Jesus do with them? What does Jesus do with people who are spiritually dull? He warns them. He's patient with them, but he warns them. In verse 14, so they're in the boat, and look what Mark says. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. You can see where this is going, right? I mean, a few days ago, Jesus fed 5,000 with a few loaves of bread. He fed 4,000 with a few loaves of bread. 
Now they're in the boat. They've only got one loaf of Mrs. Baird's bread. I mean, what are they going to do? They're, that's not enough to feed everybody. And they're at their wit's end. What do we do? They have no clue. This is how dense these guys had become at this point. He cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus hears what's going on, and he says, You guys are headed down the wrong path. You guys are going, if you don't watch it, you're going to become just like the Pharisees. Religious people who have no faith whatsoever. Beware of their leaven, Jesus says. You think that wakes them up? You think they understand? No. Verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. That's all they could see. That they had no bread. And so Jesus calls them out on this. Verse 17. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And their hearts were hardened. Back in, that, in, in Mark chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000, that whole story concludes with these words. They were utterly amazed, but their hearts were hardened. So Jesus is dealing with, he's got about a thousand, a thousand days or so to take these men with hard hearts and have them start the church that's going to change the world. He's got a tough task ahead of them. Their hearts are still hardened. He says in verse 18, Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? The warning for us, I believe, is this when it comes to being a follower of Christ who has a hard heart. It's to take heed. He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. A very serious warning from Scripture. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how briefly you followed Christ. You need to guard your heart. You have to guard your heart and not let yourself become a hard-hearted person. How do you know when your heart is getting hard? Scripture points out at least four ways, four signs of a hardening heart. Number one, first of all, you don't understand what God is doing. You just, you're clueless. You don't have a clue. That's where the disciples really were. They didn't get it. They were just clueless. Totally clueless. Here's God the Son standing in front of them, doing miracles with bread, and they're worried that they only have a little bit of bread. Clueless. Totally clueless. You know, people in the, in the church, people in, in our community, all around the world are the same way. Religious people, clueless about what God is really doing. That's number one. If you just don't get it, that's the first sign. Second sign, it's when you become critical of God and His work. You go home from church and you just criticize. This, that, and the other. 
You know, some ministry happens. Oh, it's not good enough. And I've, I've found, as a general rule, the people that are busy doing the ministry are too busy doing the ministry to really be critical of it. It's usually the people on the sidelines, you know. The, like at a football game, the 60,000 coaches in the stands, you know, that kind of attitude. Um, but the people playing the game, they're giving their heart and their soul, trying to win that game. But that's another sign that your heart is hard, that you've just become a critical person, especially of God and His work. And, uh, and of course, you know, no pastor, no elder, no, no church leader of any kind, ministry leader is perfect. It's not about that. But guard your heart, and you need to, you need to be very cautious about if you, um, if you become that kind of person that, well, I don't like the way this happened, I don't like the way this is going, I don't like the way this is doing, I don't like the way... Really? You just don't like things, do you? It says more about your heart than it says about the ministry. What's going on? Be cautious. Because it's your own heart that's being hardened. Third sign is when you counter something that God desires. I mean, it's one thing to go home and have roasted pastor for lunch. You know, It's one thing to, to just uh, be irritated about this, that, and the other and, and be critical of whatever. It's another step to start actively countering it. to start trying to cause trouble in the church, start trying to stir up God's people against what God is doing. So be cautious there. And the fourth sign is when you're uncaring toward other people. And I think things have really gotten bad. When you just get to the point, this, this is where the Pharisees really were. I mean, you start slipping down the slippery slope, and you finally get to the point where you just don't care. You just don't care about other people. All you want is your way. And if other people get crushed, forget them. You just don't care. When you start going down that road, it's a sad thing to see, and we've probably all seen it in religious life and church life, but when you start going down that road, it's your own heart that you have to be wary of. Wary of. Well, the disciples were concerned with the bread, but what was Jesus concerned with? Jesus wasn't concerned about the bread. He was concerned about the leaven. What's leaven? Leaven is an ingredient that causes bread to ferment. And, and when it ferments, it rises. You know, we all love wonderfully baked homemade bread, you know, that rises in the oven or in the bread maker, you know, and you can do all kinds of things, make this incredible bread. And, and we love that. It's, that. it's that yeast. Yeast is a kind of leaven, but it's that leaven that's inside the bread that causes it to ferment and rise. Well, in the Bible, as wonderful as we love as, all those carbs, right? In the Bible... Bread, or leaven, rather, is a symbol of evil. All throughout Scripture, leaven is a symbol of evil. Why? Because evil is like leaven in a number of ways. Evil is small. It's hidden. It spreads. And it infects everything. And leaven is such a concern to God that we have numerous warnings about leaven in our own life, spiritual leaven. And you might think, hey, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I've, I, I'm, I'm faithful at church, and I do this, that, and the other, and I'm, I'm doing all these good things. You had a little bit of leaven in your life 
a little bit of unconfessed sin, a little bit of uh, wrongness to you spreads all over. And it infects your whole heart, infects your whole life, infects your tongue with what you say, it infects your eyes with what you want to look at, it infects everything that you do. So you've got to be cautious, Scripture says, when it comes to leaven. There are certain types of leaven that Scripture tells us to look out for. One of it is, is false doctrine. Listen to Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 and 9. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, in other words, going back to becoming a Jew, saying, yeah, the only way to please God is to become a good Jew. And Paul says if you go back to that, to accepting that, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. And then he says later, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little bit of legalism in your faith will turn you into a full-fledged legalist. So be cautious, Christ says. Watch out for false doctrine. Another kind of leaven is ignored sin in the church. Sin that is ignored in the church. Sin that's not dealt with by God's people. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 6. You know about that chapter. For there was a man who was, uh, had an illegitimate kind of relationship, uh, an incestuous kind of relationship in his family. And Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And he says a few verses later, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's talking about the whole church. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Paul says you've got to deal with this church. Church, you need to not allow unconfessed sin. It will infect and infect your entire congregation. And the other kind of leaven to look out for, and this is what he's talking about here, is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. He says it plainly in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He says, Do what they say, but don't do what they do. Because those two things are different. So you have to be consistent in your life. Listen, what kind of person are you? You're one of those three kinds of people today. You're either like spiritually dull, like the disciples. And if you're in that state, you need to be, become aware that your heart, your spiritual heart is hardening. Evil is creeping into your life. And unbelief is creeping into your life. Throw that aside. Don't be like that. Come to Christ. Repent. And turn away from that spiritual dullness. You, you may be at church today and completely without faith like the Pharisees. You know, as I look out in our crowd today, I don't necessarily see anyone that I think would fit like that kind of a situation. Uh, but, but you know you better than I do. And God certainly knows you. But if you're without faith like the Pharisees, and that means you become perverse, you become wicked, you become spiritually blind. The third kind of person is someone who's in need of Christ and His power. If you would say, if you have the humility in your heart to say, yes, I need what Jesus offers me today. Every day, I need Him. Like the old hymn, I need Thee every hour. I need Christ. I need You, God. Every hour of the day. 
That means you lean on him and you welcome his provision in your life. And if necessary, you welcome his discipline into your life because you know he's a loving Heavenly Father. And he cares for you. What kind of person are you today? Christ wants us to recognize our need of him and to respond in faith.